0: We are wrapping up our, our Advent series today. And we've been looking at this whole, like what Lee was challenging us with this morning was so poignant. Like we, sometimes I think Christmas can get lost on us. Especially those of us who've grown up in the church. And this whole idea of Jesus coming, of, of the incarnation, kind of can just be kind of like, yeah, yeah, whatever. And so we've been looking at a few different things that in the incarnation through Jesus coming, what he brings us. And so we looked at how he brings us peace. he brings us hope and how he brings us joy and then today last but not least we're going to be looking at how he brings us love and this is good news for us because often we exist in this this space of broken relationships so we need peace to we need to be able to have peace so that we can be peacemakers in those broken relationships and we need hope because more often than not we feel a sense of anxiety about the future more than hope and we need joy Because more often than not, we feel a sense of despair as we look towards the future. Like, what does the future even hold? And today, we're gonna look at the compare and contrast of fear and love, and the good news of the fact that Jesus brings us love. And so, I was thinking about this this week. My little boy Theo is five, and uh, we'll be wrestling every once in a while, and I'll be beating him up, and we'll be, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll grab him and I'll look at him in the eye, And I'll just look, I'll have this look on my face, I guess, that gives it away, and I'm like, Theo, and he goes, I know what you're gonna say. And I'm like, what am I gonna say? He's like, you love me. And I'm like, yeah, I do love you. And I think for some of us, hearing God loves us can feel like the same thing. Like, okay, I've heard this a million times, whatever. God loves us. But my prayer is that this morning, we hear it in a fresh way. That that there's something refreshing and real and new that we need to hear because it is actually really good news that God loves us. It's really good news that He brings love. And so I'm gonna read from John 3.16, another a verse that we've heard a lot of times that I'm praying will not fall on deaf ears. And then we're gonna pray and then we'll hop in, okay? So John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and, be, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed." But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful this morning that we can come together and and read your word and be in your presence together and celebrate who you are and what you've done. And I ask Holy Spirit this morning that you would come make our eyes open to see the good news of the gospel. The good news that God, in fact, does love us so much that he gave his only son. And for those of us, Lord, who, have, who feel like Theo and we know what's going to come next, I pray that our hearts would be shifted to, to a place of expectation and not a place of complacency, God. And we just ask you to come lead and guide our time together. Help my voice work and say strong. May, may I be clear and may you be glorified in everything we do and say, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. 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 Okay, who here loves poutine? Gross. (laughs) (laughs) Who here loves summer? Uh Yeah. Yeah. Who here loves their parents most of the time? Some of the time. Who here loves God? All right. I'd be interested to hear, you know, if God's hearing, that. okay, you guys love me and you love poutine. (laughs) There has to be some delineation between me and poutine. (laughs) Or my parents in summer. Summer's better than my parents. No, I I love my parents. But the point is that I think sometimes there's a misappropriation of the word love. That we use it a bit too flippantly and nonchalantly. Um, My little girls are growing up and they love love. They love it. They talk about it all the time. They're reading books and I can hear them giggling upstairs. And I'm like, okay, this is probably the point in their story. There's some type of romance happening, and they're giggling, and I'm like, go to sleep. It's time for bed. But our kids love love. And, and could it be that we throw around the word love a bit too casually? And I think this shows that love is one of the things that is completely misunderstood by our culture and, and by the church. Um, and I think more often than not, love, when we say that word, it, it's essentially like what we're saying about poutine. I love poutine. I don't. You, you, some of you love poutine. And what you're saying in that is that you don't have an affectionate feeling or you're not desiring the good of poutine. You just want to eat it. You want to consume poutine and you want to get something from that. And the same could be said of those of us who say, you know, I love my boyfriend or girlfriend, what you're actually saying probably is I want to consume them and get something from them. And the same thing from your parents, I want to get something from my parents, I want to consume something of my parents. And I think it's more often than not that we get it wrong about what the fact of love really is. So what does the Bible teach us about love? The Hebrew word used in the Old Testament for love is the word ahava. And it means this, to have affection sexually or otherwise, to love, like, to befriend, or to be intimate. It brings to mind the idea of longing for, or breathing for, another. Hebraically, ahava is a verb and a noun, it is an act of doing, ahava is not just a feeling. Or in the great words of the seminal Christian rock band DC Talk, (laughs) love is a verb. The Aramaic word that Jesus used is rachma. And that word translated in the New Testament Greek, a lot of us growing up in the church we would have heard this, is agape. Anyone heard that word before? Yeah. Yes, agape. And agape, agape means this. The decision and discipline of the heart to delight in another's soul as an image bearer of God and to will their good no matter the cost to you. Do you feel that way about Poutine. Agape. <laughs> Agape is other-centered sacrificial care. Other-centered sacrificial care. That's what the Bible teaches us about love. What we need to know is that every single one of us in this room, we were made from love and for love. This is part of our identity as image bearers of God. So where does this type of love come from? This love comes from God. God. And a lot of you guys were around earlier this year when we taught through um, the face-to-face series where we taught the one Sunday, I think it was one of my favorite Sundays ever, where we taught about the Trinity and the actual, the origins of love. 1 John 4.8 says this, God is love. God is love. Jason Hobson, when he was teaching, said this brilliant thing. He said, if God was an essential oil, he would be love. thought oh, that was really good. This is what Pete Creep says. He says, Love is God's essence. Nowhere else does Scripture express God's essence in this way. Scripture says God is just and merciful, but it does not say that God is justice itself or mercy itself. It does, however, say that God is love, not just a lover. Love is God's very essence. Everything else is a manifestation of this essence to us, a relationship between this essence and us. This is the absolute. Everything else is relative to it. So what we believe as Christians or as followers of Jesus is that our God exists in three persons. He exists as Father, Son, and Spirit. And they have this beautiful relationship that has existed from before the foundations of the world were even laid, from before, the to- before time even began, where they have this beautiful union with one another and this preference of one another, this agape for one another and this is the basic basis for all our reality not just for church but for reality itself for creation itself it was birthed out of this relationship of love you the people in this room they were birthed out of this dream that the father son in spirit had god is an eternal being that has existed in and sustained and has been sustained in agape love what we see in this—this this, why this is important—is that if God was this singular Omni being, He would actually He He would need you to fulfill some lack that He had. And what we see in the Trinity, and this is what C.S. Lewis says, He says this: God needs nothing. God, who needs nothing, loves into existence wholly superfluous creatures in order that He may love them and perfect them. So you are wholly superfluous. God, God is secure. He does not need you for anything, but he loves you. Again, C.S. Lewis, in God there is no hunger that needs to be filled, only plenteousness that desires to give. He doesn't need to consume you or to get something from you. He, he wants to see you and love you and care for you in a sacrificial way. And that's the dynamic that has existed from the beginning from before the beginning of time in the father-son spirit relationship it is relational the father and the son and the son and the father they are not alone they are united in purpose in that relationship there is no insecurity and and moreover this goes back to what we were reading before in that relationship it is pure light there is nothing to hide there is no fear in the relationship of the father the son in the spirit. So that is where love originates in the relationship shared there. And what we see in Jesus is that he brings us love. Jesus comes from love, right? He exists in that relationship. He comes from love to give love, to love the world. While on earth, what did Jesus announce? Thank you, Josh. He announced the kingdom. And what we mean by the kingdom is that we, we, what he's announcing is God's rule expressed in God's way by God's people in God's place. That's the kingdom of God. So Jesus comes to announce the arrival of the kingdom. And this is good news to us because in the beginning, in the garden, right, God gave us a purpose as his image bearers to rule with him, to partner with him to see his kingdom established in the earth. But we rebelled against him, right? We fell into sin. But Jesus comes to announce the arrival of God's kingdom. Again, there's a new way back to relationship with the Father. There's a new way to live into your, the purpose that you were given before the foundation of the world. So in this, or in this announcement, as he's living life on earth, he gives his kingdom manifestos. Or in or, or other words, what, what it looks like to live in God's kingdom. What it looks like to live in God's kingdom as a new kind of human being. And so as he's going around teaching, he's healing, he's, there's all these miraculous things that are happening. People are being delivered from demonic oppression. People are being healed. People are finding love. People are being seen that had never been seen before. And in the midst of all this, someone asked Jesus, okay, you're announcing this kingdom of God's rule and God's way and God's, by God's people and God's place. What In this kingdom then, what's the greatest commandment? And his answer is this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That is the greatest commandment. And the Jewish people would have realized this and known this because this was taught way back in the, in, the, in the Mosaic Covenant. All that kind of stuff was important. But they're asking, okay, what Jesus is bringing to light is that these are two sides of the same coin. So is it, okay, is the greatest commandment to love God or is it to love my neighbor? And the answer is yes. It's both. It's both and So this brings to mind, okay, what is love then in God's kingdom? And then who is my neighbor? We know who God is, but then what is love? Love in the kingdom is agape love. Love in the kingdom is other-centered sacrificial care. Okay, we're tracking, we need to love God that way. But then who is my neighbor? Is it the person that I live next to? Literally, in proximity, who is my neighbor? And this is how Jesus answers in Luke chapter 6. I think i'm going to read all this you guys doing okay all right luke chapter six who is our neighbor then but i say to you who hear this is jesus speaking love your enemies do good to those who hate you bless those who curse you pray for those who abuse you what is happening to one who strikes you on the cheek offer the other one also what In this kingdom of which Jesus is the example of the model citizen, there's a different definition of, it, of neighbor and love going on here. In the kingdom, Jesus says there is no boundary on the word enemy. Our neighbor includes our enemy. And so what, what's going on culturally or like what, into what context is Jesus speaking? Jesus is speaking into Israel, who at the time was occupied by another nation. They were no longer sovereign over their own nation, they were occupied by the Romans. And so there was a real, when, when Jesus would have said, love your enemy, there would have been someone that came to mind really easily for them. And Israel was awaiting, as we know, as we know, and this is what Lee was talking about earlier, there was these prophecies of, of one who was going to come, who was going to liberate them and set them free. And so in their minds, they're, they're being occupied by another nation, okay, he's going to come from the line of David. He's going to sit on the throne of David. David was a militaristic king. Okay, maybe this Messiah is going to come and he's going to, he's going to set up uh, like a new government and then finally Rome will be out of here and, and Israel will be in charge again. And there's all kinds of different revolutions and things like that that had happened in Israel's history. One that was actually successful was a few, a few years before this. Judas Maccabeus actually set up a little bit of a kingdom. And so they were waiting for something like this to happen again. And so Jesus is coming and he's announcing the return of God's kingdom. And when, when he's, when he, imagine like them lining up like, okay, we're gonna get some militaristic plans. He's gonna have some plot to go overthrow the Romans. And he's like, actually, you know what I want you guys to do? Love your enemies. I want you to give them a tunic and not expect anything back. Imagine their disbelief. Imagine their confusion. Imagine their, wait, what? Who is this guy? And what we see is that this is part of of a much bigger story going on. That Jesus' kingdom, the kingdom of the Father, is different than the kingdom of the world. In so many ways, the kingdom of God, simply put, is, is upside down. And so we see Jesus live out this manifesto, live out this whole idea of enemy love pitched perfectly. In the incarnation, Jesus comes as the God-man, right? Who will reveal to us what the Father is really like. And in doing so, what he's going to display. If, if If our God is Father, Son, Spirit, who's lived in a perfect example and expression of love, he's going to come and show us what love actually looks like. And ultimately, this is most beautifully displayed on the cross as Jesus lays down his life for us, binding himself to us in all of our sin and in our shame. On the cross, we see Jesus allowing his enemies not only to strike the other cheek, but to literally kill him. Jesus allowed his enemies to kill him. Romans 5, 8 and 10, Paul says this, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were God's enemies... While we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Colossians 1.21 Once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. 1 John 4.9 In this, the agape of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world, So that we might live through him. He brings love so that we can be loving. Everything he's done for us and everything he's done to us and for us, he now wants to do through us, right? Jesus, of course, is not asking us to do something that he himself has not already done. It's one of my favorite things about Jesus. He gives us the example that we can follow. 1 John 4 11, Beloved, if God so loves us, we also ought to love one another. Jesus sets an incredible example for us.
1: So, just like
0: the, the Israelites hearing this at the time, loving people and loving enemies, especially, can stir up a lot of fear or confusion or anxiety in us. Loving people we like is a scary enough endeavor, am I right? Putting your heart out there. Being willing to be hurt is a scary enough endeavor, let alone loving our enemies. And Christmas time can be one of those times where maybe you're heading to some Christmas parties and your enemy is coming to mind. You know, maybe you're at work and someone else who you thought you were better than at work got the promotion that you thought you deserved. And they're your enemy. You're like, "How, how did they get the promotion that I most clearly, obviously deserve? They're my enemy. Or whatever that might be. Maybe it's someone from your family. Maybe it's a younger sibling or older sibling that you've had this sense of competition and you've become enemies of one another. How do we go into Christmas? How do we go into the rest of our lives not letting fear rule and reign, but letting love rule and reign? Our our brains are interesting things. Our brains work. um, There's a thing called the limbic system or the amygdala that's in our brain. And what it's doing, it's constantly scanning every interaction we're having, scanning the room, scanning people's body language, what's going on, and it's scanning to see, is this safe or unsafe? Is this safe or unsafe? It's happening all the time. Our brains are an incredible thing, an incredible gift from God. Is this safe or unsafe? Is this safe or unsafe? And what happens when we're in a fearful place, um, when we're in a place of of hypervigilance, it's due to a, a sense of being insecure. This is an unsafe experience. This is an unsafe person or place. And what happens is our brain kicks into hypervigilance. And when that happens, often we go into, you guys have heard of this, the fight, fight or flight or freeze thing. And our brains go into this way of thinking and working and interacting. And it's almost like it takes over our cognitive way of even making decisions. So when we're in a place of fear, our brains actually stop working properly. It's crazy. Our brains are wired and meant to work in a place of love, not of fear which goes all the way back to the Trinitarian existence that we come from, right? So when we're in this place of fear, we can no longer think clearly or feel things accurately. What happens is there's a a love and fear switch in our brains and when it's locked into fear, we can no longer think clearly or feel correctly. Like we're just kind of locked up there and we're we're stuck in that place. We get locked up in fear. This is what 1 John says about fear. There is no fear in agape. But perfect agape casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in agape. So let's quickly just compare and contrast fear and love. So if agape love is other-centered, fear is actually self-centered. If you guys think about like, when you're in a, when you're in a fearful state, you're, you're most, mostly concerned about yourself in that situation. Um, agape love is sacrificial. Um, fear often turns into becoming self-preserving. How do I protect myself? And that's not always a bad thing, but just bear with me. And then love, agape love, is about care, and fear often is self-serving. The overall tone of love, it's about you. The overall tone of fear, it's about me. So what, how does this line up with Jesus' command to love our enemies, those who are often can be afraid of? How does love exist? All that stuff that we've been talking about. The, the, the most important thing that we need to know in this is we're trying to think, okay, God's asking us that this is a pretty tall order, God. Like, how am I supposed to love my enemies? This is the, the basic line is this. You can't give what you don't have. Okay? So it's so important that we get the order right. We love because he first loved us. 1 John four nineteen. We read earlier in Romans 5, 8 that we were actually enemies of God. We were enemies of God, and he came to us and agape us. He came to us in an other-centered, sacrificial, caring way, and so much so that Jesus laid down his life for you and me. So the only way this works is if we allow him to love us, if we live in the reality of his agape for us. Allowing him to love us will unlock the fear switch and allow us to be turned over to love. John 13, 34, and 35, Jesus says this to his disciples, A new commandment I give to you, That you love one another just as I have loved you. Just as I have loved you. So there's this prerequisite thing that, that Jesus is saying. And the command here actually is this. Let me love you. 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 The reality is, guys, is that this is the only way this is possible. This is the only way that this is possible. Trying to do this in our own strength will be a fruitless, exhausting battle. As we think about the gospel, as we think about the life of Jesus and what he brings to us, the most staggering reality of God's agape love for us is that it purchases, it purchases us and it brings us back into union with Jesus, where, where he has included us in his life, death, resurrection and ascension, where what's true of him is now true of us. So as we're thinking about the Father, the Son, and the Spirit relationship that's existed from before time began, the Father is always gazing on the Son with adoration and love in his heart. And the Son is always gazing at the Father in in the same way. And so one of the scriptures that Paul says, he says we're actually hidden in Christ now. We're seated with him. So imagine that. We get to look at the Father and see the Father the way Jesus does. And he, he looks on us the way he looks on the Son incredible so this is this is the good news that we're in union with jesus that he's he's included us in his life death resurrection and ascension that means that we are loved the same way that he is loved completely fully totally always also in this for us jesus of course never sinned jesus never opposed god's kingdom and his ways whereas we each and every one of us in this room have But it points to the fact that in in Christ, we are forgiven of those things. That if we come to him, if we confess our sin to him, we will be forgiven. Okay? It's as simple as that. We do not have to be afraid of punishment anymore when we're in Christ. And what we mean when we say sin, sin is one of those words that's like, okay, yeah, okay. But sin is any activity or mindset that is in opposition or rebellion to God's kingdom and God's ways. Okay, we used this analogy last week where there's a way in which God has created the world. And if you think about a piece of wood, how the grain works, when you run your hand against the grain, you will get splinters, you will hurt yourself. It will not be good. It will be a bloody mess. Okay, and that's what happens when we live in active, conscious rebellion against God. We do not want that. And I want to be clear, sin is not just like being addicted to pornography or robbing a bank. Sin is gossip. Sin is slander. Sin is sexual immorality, but it's not just, we, we, we can't like quantify sin. Sin is sin. There's a way in which God has made the world to work, and in any way we're going against that, watch out, okay? Come to Him, repent. repent of your sin, turn the opposite direction, go with God's ways instead of your ways. Ephesians 1.7 says this, In Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Forgiveness is available to you. Just come to him. What happens when we allow God to meet us there in our pain, in our fear, in our hurt, in our brokenness is that we will be able to more easily love our enemies as we receive God's love there. When we realize how loved we are in Christ, we will finally be able to love our enemies. John Orberg puts it this way. When we live in the love of God, we begin to pay attention to people the way God pays attention to us. What we need to do, guys, in this is we need to accept that we are accepted. Fear has so much to do with punishment, right? And so if we don't accept that we're accepted, we will constantly be living in that place of fear of punishment. But when we accept that we are accepted into Jesus' life, into the eternal love of the Trinity, the fear switch will be disengaged and we'll be able to love our enemies. But here comes the question that I think is worth asking. Do you actually intend on loving your enemies? Because it's one thing to hear that. Yeah, okay, cool. This kingdom sounds pretty crazy, but what does that actually mean? Yeah, cool. I think I prayed that prayer once, so I'm just going to hang out till Jesus comes back. Do you intend on loving your enemies? And if so, what are you willing to do to become loving? To embody agape love? This is where we realize as followers of Jesus that we need to learn from him how to live life. That we in our own way of of determining good and evil and determining what's right and what's wrong have gotten ourselves into a whole bunch of mess. But what we, we can do, the invitation that's extended to us is to follow Jesus, to learn from him how to be a human, to learn from him how to love our enemy in this case. And what needs to happen is that our will our broken will is, is actually bent towards fear, right? It's bent towards self-centeredness and self-preservation and self-serving attitudes and behaviors. But as we apprentice ourselves to Jesus, as we learn from him how to live life, we will learn how to embody other-centered sacrificial care. How do we do that then? This, this is just a few things from the, the scripture in Luke chapter 6 that we read before. How do we love our enemies or those we are afraid of. The first thing we see in Luke chapter 6 is this, we bless them. One of the main ways that we can love those who are our enemies or those we are afraid of is to watch what we say about them. It's one of the, one of the main things we can do to bless them. When we think about social media or any of the news cycles that we would be privy to, to watching or hearing, that entire industry and thing is, is based off of fear. How do we make you afraid of the other? And that's, that's kind of the world that we exist in. So one of the main ways that we can come against them, that is to bless our enemies, to think about what we're saying to those who actually we are afraid of or that we are, have different viewpoints or opinions then. Watch what you say about them. Proverbs 18 says this, death and life are in the power of the tongue. So how do we watch what we say about those people? I think this especially comes into play when you know you're right. Does that make sense? When you know you're right. Say someone's living in a lifestyle that opposes the way of the kingdom. Even in how you talk about that person, there's an opportunity to bless them rather than curse them. It's not your job to condemn or to convict. That's the job the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. What we do when we're we're holding our tongue and biting our tongue and choosing to speak life and watching what we're saying about our enemies is that it proves that we have ourselves nothing to prove. Christ has proved it all for us. We're in him. And this actually is a sacrificial act that lines up with agape love. The second thing we do in in learning how to practice loving our enemies is to literally do good to them. Don't seek revenge. That is not your responsibility. God is the judge and he is just. This is what Proverbs 25 says this. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head and the Lord will reward you. If doing good to your enemy feels sacrificial and costly, you know you're on the right track. The final thing we see in Luke chapter 6 is this, that as, as we're learning to love our enemies, one of the main things we need to do is to pray for them. Pray for your enemies. Pray for those who hurt you. This is pretty straightforward. We're praying that they would encounter God in all of his gracious and glorious splendor. Because we too were enemies of God, right? And we all need to encounter Jesus and follow him into the kingdom, into his way of living. So that's about it, guys. I'm going to close up. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up and then um, we're going to respond with singing. But in closing, I want to just say a couple things and I'm going to read from Ephesians chapter 3, just a prayer in closing. Um, Jesus brings us more than words can ever truly express, right? But what we see over and over again in these gifts that we're thinking about is that, you know, He brings us peace so that we can be peacemakers. He brings us hope so that we can look to the future with no anxiety. He brings us joy so that we can come out of despair. He brings us love so we don't have to be stuck in fear anymore. All of these gifts that He brings us, love, hope, joy, and peace, are meant to be shared. They're meant to be re-gifted. They're meant to be processing this over and over and over again. And The more we do this, the more heaven will invade earth, and the more Allison will look like heaven, and the more God's kingdom will take up residence in the places that we work, the places that we live, in our minds, in our bodies, and on and on it goes. We say that, we pray that, and everyone's like, yes, we want God's kingdom to come. But this is how we do it. We practice using the gifts that he's given us and what he's brought to us in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. What we see guys in agape love is that it's not so much about what you get it's about what you give and we see this most beautifully in the verse that we began with this morning for god so loved for god so agape that he gave his one and only son it's more about giving than receiving we have eternity to come to grips with the depth of this love guys but let's start giving it now the more we learn about it the more we receive it let's be quick to give it away. So why don't we stand I'm going to read this prayer from Paul in Ephesians chapter 3 and then we'll respond with singing. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of God, which surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen.